Hey prosers, welcome to another episode of Behind the Pros, the show that allows me the opportunity to analyze, explore, and illuminate the craft of writing for you. I will read essays and memoirs and fiction and I'll ask questions based on the things I see and hopefully those things will allow you to learn something as well. Today's show features author Mandy Lynn Catron. Her memoir comes out today, June 27th. It's called How to Fall in Love with Anyone and it is out on Simon & Schuster. I also have a short uh, behind the Pros Short, which is a new thing. It's a interview with an author named Bob Brody. His memoir came out on Father's Day this June. I haven't read his whole book yet, but I talked to him about the first few chapters that I did read. And hopefully that will give you a little bit of flavor for his book and his writing style. And if you are on the email list, you can be notified when I will interview Bob again after reading his whole book and you can have an opportunity to send in some special questions for for Bob that after you've read the book so it'll be kind of like a book group slash group interview so make sure you are on the email list go to behindthepros.com to sign up or listen for the text sign up at the end of the show I'm still working on my chunks of 20. Um, I've been on this current chunk since March. I'm up to number 16 in the chunk. Um, I just got a rejection for number 16. So I have four more to go to finish out this 20. I'm not expecting completely good things in this chunk because I already got my two yeses. And according to my statistical research, You get accepted about 10% of the time. So two out of 20 is mm, what I can expect. So um, I'll look for the next four no's and then be excited about my next chunk of 20 once I get there. I have been a little bit, um, I haven't been working on my chunks as much because I've been trying to finish a book proposal. I'm working on a book idea on the modern love column. And that is actually how I met um, author Mandy Lynn Catron, who I interviewed today, and I interviewed for her. I interviewed her for my book proposal, and then when her book came out, I interviewed her as well for that, which is what you'll get today. So, if you have publication shout outs, please make sure you send them to info at behind the pros. If you're on the email list, you will get a newsletter that also shares some publication shout outs of uh, past guests of Behind the Pros. So, today's episode, as I said, doubleheader Mandy Lynn Catron and Bob Brody. We're going to start with Mandy. You're going to stay right there and then you're going to be there for Bob Brody at the end. You're going to text me. You're going to tweet me. You're going to tell me what you think and we're going to do it all again next week or the week after, but we're going to do it again. Okay. Prosers, I'm back. I have a very special treat for you. This is the first time that I'm interviewing a guest prior to their book coming out and uh this guest mandy lynn catrone no i just said it wrong (laughs) she just told me y'all and you know when i focus on something i tend to just mess up so catrone can you tell us mandy lynn catrone is here and her book 
is coming out on the 27th. It's called How to Fall in Love with Anyone. So thank you, Mandy, for being here today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, I've got a new setup here. I'm FaceTiming with Mandy, and I'm recording this through my Zoom H4N recorder, and it just is a thunderstorm out here. How's the weather where you are, and where are you? I'm in Vancouver, B.C., and in Vancouver, we call the month of June, January, because we get this, like, beautiful spring weather in April and May, and then for whatever reason, every year in June, it starts raining, and it's disgusting again, so it's classic January weather. Well, I think that you guys have sent that down our way, because that's, like, what we've been having here. Ah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> That is okay, though, because it's still going to be a beautiful day because you are going to be a published author on a mainstream house. Congratulations. Thank you. It's still sort of hard to believe. That's very exciting. I'm slowly getting used to that idea. Do you remember where you were when uh, you got the news that your book had sold? Oh, yeah. I was... Um, I had driven to a friend's house out in the suburbs to walk her dog, mm -hmm. and um, it's about a 45-minute drive, and so I was coming back, and I got a phone call from my agent, and he was like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm driving, and he was like, well, you should pull over. And um, so I pulled the car over, and um, and he said, we got an offer, so um, it was pretty exciting, and it was a good thing that I was not driving during that conversation. <laughs> and that in your book is coming out on Simon and Schuster. Yeah. Congratulations. Who's your agent? Let's give him a shout out. Uh, his name is Sam Stoloff. He works at the Francis Golden Literary Agency. And he is so awesome. I feel so, so lucky to be able to work with him. So a little backstory with me and Mandy, as you guys may know, I'm working on a book proposal that involves the column Modern Love. And so for my proposal, I was studying Modern Loves that came out in the year 2015. And I came across Mandy's Modern Love, which was published, I think it was like the third or fourth one that year. Yeah, I think it would have even, it would, came out on the 11th. So it might have been the second one. Mm -hmm. And so your modern love column, actually, you had already been working on your book, but your modern love column mm -hmm. actually led to you, um, the expedition, I guess, of this book deal. Is that correct? Yeah, I would say I could probably still be shopping it around right now if that hadn't happened. Yeah, so that dramatically expedited the process. And so there's so much to go into. I feel like I, I, I've, I've interviewed you once for the proposal, and so I know a lot, and a lot of people don't know a lot. We could talk about the um, essay. We could talk about the book. Um, so let's just start then with the Modern Love essay. Where did you get the inspiration to write that essay? I mean, I had been writing about romantic love for a long time. I knew I wanted to write a book about love and love stories. And um, and I'd started a blog, and I was just doing lots of research. So I was interested in seeing this sort of 
I was interested in taking a more pragmatic approach to love because I felt like the stories I had sort of grown up with and really deeply invested in um, weren't really offering me much useful advice in terms of actually making good decisions and and, um, figuring out what the role of love would be in my life. Um, And so I did a lot of research into psychology of romantic love, neurochemistry of romantic love, um, sociological theories of storytelling, just like anything I could get my hands on. I teach students how to write research papers at the University of British Columbia. So um, it was, I think, a natural extension of that, which was like, if you want to understand something, um, look it up, see what the experts have to say. And it, I think right now, and just the past, I don't know, 10, 20 years are a really good time to be learning about love because it's only relatively recently become a subject of like serious uh, scholarly investigation. I think for a long time, people were like, the scientists were like, oh, we'll just leave that to the poets. Um, but that's really changed a lot lately. So I just found like tons of interesting research. And one of the things that I came across in that process was this study done by some psychologists with the goal of creating romantic love in the laboratory. And um, it was one of those things that I just tucked away in my brain and um, very sort of unexpectedly got the chance to try it one night. And I was going to write about it for my blog, um, but then I kind of thought I had been telling my friends about the experience and they were like, they're so into it. Um, and I thought, you know, maybe I should see if someone would actually pay me to write about this. <laughs> and um, and so I decided to write an article about it. And obviously that decision um, was a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so can you tell us the process? Where did you send it first? Uh, did you send it to Modern Love first or what? No. So initially it was like 3,000 words long, which is about double the word count of modern love so i thought i always thought that i might write something for modern love one day because i knew lots of people get book deals from the modern love column and i it was basically the only potential pathway that i figured out into how to actually sell a book um but i just thought this was like not the right thing for modern love because it was just way too long and i couldn't imagine how to cut it down so i sent it to an online magazine first they seemed interested and then um, the editor just sort of disappeared and I, I didn't hear back from her for like six weeks and, and I got frustrated. So I thought, okay, I need to submit it somewhere else. And I thought, let me just try to see if I can cut the length down. And I got it down to like 1700 words and sent it to modern love. And luckily, um, Dan Jones, the editor of modern love is very good at his job and had no problem cutting off another 200 words. So that was good. So, and I know uh, when we talked, there is a little interim thing that happened from the point when you sent it initially and to mm-hmm. when it was accepted. Can you explain to us what that was? Yeah, so in the in the initial version of the article that I submitted, I, I said um, in the last paragraph, I described doing the study in the last paragraph, I said, you've you're probably wondering if he and I are in love. Um, and the answer is, I'm, I'm just not sure. <laughs> but we're very close, and we'll sort of see what becomes of that closeness. 
Um, and at the time, that was, I think, the right answer. And it, it felt really honest. And I, it was important to me to be honest about this. Like, I, I really, because I've been researching and writing about love for so long, I, I really wanted to be um, pragmatic and sincere. And I didn't want to fetishize love and make it sound like this um, disingenuous, happy ending. Um, but then in the, I think it was about a month after I sent it off that started to feel dishonest. Like our relationship got a lot more serious in that time. And I thought, I don't want this article to come out saying we're not in love when actually I feel like, you know, things have really changed. Um, and so I revised the ending and resubmitted it. And, um, I think I heard from Dan like two days later and he was like, you know, I liked your column and I had set it aside, but I just didn't think the ending was working. And he was like, but this one works. And so he published it like two weeks after that. So it was a really exciting month. Did you have any anxiety about sending a second ending in? Um, not really, not at that point. I think I had more anxiety about the the possibility of it getting, I mean, I knew getting published in Modern Love was a long shot, but I, I hated the idea of it getting published with the original ending when that felt no longer like a good description of our relationship. So it seemed like no big deal to change it. And I, I you know, I know he gets like thousands of submissions. So I thought, eh, you know, like maybe he hasn't even looked at the original. So I wasn't too worried. And that essay was called To Fall in Love with Anyone, Do This. And I'll have the link in the show notes. And it was the second one that came out in 2015. So I've read the book and I read it on my Kindle. Actually, I read it on my iPad. I read it on the Kindle app on my iPad, um, <laughs> to be specific. Uh, so it allows me to take a bunch of notes here. Oh, that's cool. I don't have an e-reader. Every now and then I'm like, you know, I might be missing out on this. <laughs> so um, just scrolling through here. And I'll also put a link. There's a picture of me with the e-version of Mandy's book on Twitter. Um, so definitely check that out. I'll put the link to her book where you can get it on Amazon, on Kindle, in the bookstore. So let us begin. How to fall in love with anyone. The first thing, the subtitle, or not really, I don't know if we'd call it a subtitle, like the description of the book under that is a memoir in essays. When you began crafting this book, did you know that's what it was? Or did you think of it as... Did you know that? What did you know? That's what it was. No. Okay. <laughs> I'll just stop you right there because I, the answer is very simple. Um, no, I had no idea what it was. Like I knew it was nonfiction, and I knew it was going to combine research with personal experience and reflection, and um, you know, like I loved reading essays and I loved writing essays, but I felt like there was no way anyone would publish a collection of essays from a totally unknown writer. I felt like 
you know, at the time, and I think maybe even they told us this in grad school, um, you can't, like, it's just essay collections don't sell. And, like, unless you're Joan Didion or Barbara Kingsolver or, or Zadie Smith, then you don't get to publish a collection of essays. So I thought, okay, well, I'll figure out something else for it to be. Um, but actually, I think in the many years I spent writing this book, that really changed. Like, there mm-hmm. is a real interest in the essay. And um, and so, I don't know. Uh, I, Basically, what happened was I had this manuscript, and it was just like a, I would describe it like a collection of vignettes, and um, I wasn't really sure what to do with it. Um, And then after my Modern Love column came out, and I found my agent, he said, he said, I don't think your manuscript is really working like this, but do you want to write it as a collection of essays? And I was like, oh my God, yes. And I just realized like, oh, this is an option, and um from that point forward, it's very easy for me to figure out what the book would look like and how to structure it. What, so that was good. Well, what was the difference, one of the largest differences between what it was before when he said, oh, you know, I don't know it's going to work like this? Um, I think before it was just not quite well organized like a lot of the same material is in the book but initially um i had this really complicated structure in mind and um i really wrestled with how to structure the book and then i had this idea at one point that it would be like a spiral which i there's no way i'm going to be able to like verbally describe this effectively but i like charted it out in my notebook but the idea was that it would begin with my parents' love story, which there's there's now an essay, and I talk about my parents a lot throughout, but there's an essay sort of devoted to this, but that it would begin with that story and then slowly unpack that story as it went along. And also I would bring in parts of my own experiences with love and also research. And, and so I had this idea that it would just be one long sort of complicated unpacking of this sort of creation story, this formative love story in my life. Um, but that's a really hard thing to pull off. So I think it, it definitely works much better as is. And I guess this is maybe an observation or a question for you. So it says a memoir and essays. And I think generally when people hear that, the assumption might be that, well, there's not really a through line but for mm-hmm. me, it felt like I have a hard time, I guess, distinguishing between a memoir and a memoir and essays in the way that you wrote it, because it feels more like a progression because we start with you trying to figure out the situation with the first boyfriend. And then mm-hmm. we end with you um, figuring out kind of, well, that situation and coming to more conclusions about what love is and why you believe what you believe. And so, and, and within that, there's still like, there's a through line with your parents' story and learning more about their Mm -hmm. history. So I don't know, it felt very connected to me. And Mm -hmm. I I guess I just want to hear your opinion on if you do see a real difference between the two. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say, 
it's a, the distinction is maybe a little bit semantic, but for me, um, I think of an essay as like a, a complete uh, text, and I think about so so any one essay within the book should stand alone and make sense alone. Um, could be published outside the book and still work. I think I hope. Um, but the other thing is the, so I took all the material that I had from my manuscript and turned it into a book proposal and then set out to write these essays one at a time. And the way that writing an essay works for me is that I usually begin with some sort of intuition or a question and like ultimately it's the question that, um, or the attempt to answer that question that functions as like the plot of the essay. Like I think Philip Lopate said something like the plot of an essay is um, a writer's mind sort of trying to come to terms with an idea or solve a problem. And I really like this idea, this way of thinking about the genre. So each essay in the book, I think I'm wrestling with one aspect of you know, I would characterize the whole book as being like about the gap between how we talk about love and the stories we tell about love in our culture and how we actually practice it. And so I would say that each essay tackles some specific aspect of that gap. So obviously there there is a big sort of through line because thematically they're, they're all about love stories, but also they have a lot of the same characters because I'm writing about my own experiences with love, which means writing about my family and writing about a previous relationship and writing about my current relationship. Um, but I think each one is kind of discreet and is really about trying to wrestle with some aspect of love stories, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think if there are people listening who might be interested in tackling a memoir in essays, it would be a good model to follow because as you said they do stand alone but they do all feel um connected um as i go through the the book you said that uh tell me a little bit about how you did your research for this did you like how did you keep your files where is it all online um <laughs> I wish I could tell you that I had like a really good system and hopefully when I write my next book, I will have a good system. Um, I have a folder full of bookmarks that contains all sorts of um, articles that I came across the way, uh, that I came across along the way. I have somewhere on my computer like a folder full of like academic journal articles. Um, that I downloaded sort of sporadically. I have one shelf of my bookshelf that's just books about love. It's like the, if you were to look at my bookshelf, you could easily identify that shelf because they're almost all red or pink. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you can see this series of red book spines and you're like, oh, that's the love shelf. Um, and then I use Scrivener, which oh. I love and would tell everyone to use. And basically, the book was written over many years as multiple um, 
dress. And so what I would do is I, I would start and I would just have this series of little Scrivener documents and I would organize them sort of by ideas and folders. And then what happened many times along the way, like I think three or four times, maybe more, I would get to a point where I felt stuck and I thought, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. It was a very demoralizing point. <laughs> and I would close the Scrivener document. At one point I took like six months off of writing because I just had no clue how to proceed. And then I would always start fresh. So it start with a brand new document and that represented like a new draft of the book. And um, essentially that sort of worked. So I probably have like, I don't know, six different Scrivener documents that are manuscripts. Hmm. And when you say documents, do you mean like the within like the one book file or? Yeah, okay, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it contains like many, many smaller documents. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I we I actually interviewed um, Gwen Hernandez, who wrote the Scrivener for Dummies book a couple years ago. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so we love Scrivener here. Shout out to Scrivener. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm like a huge fan of Scrivener. I just, I don't know how anyone would go through this process just with Word documents. I mean, that would be a disaster. Yeah. It, um, I totally agree. I just showed it to one of my students. She's like, oh my God, this is so awesome. Yeah. It's like life-changing software. So I'm scrolling through some of these notes here that I have. Let's see. One of the things I can say off the bat is your depth. The research that you did definitely comes through in this and you weave it in a way that you weave it in, in a way that's not dry. And you seem to find moments within the narrative action that relates to whatever research you want to highlight at that point. Um, how much work did that take and how did you achieve that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say that's like a pretty intuitive process, which doesn't mean that it was easy to be clear. Um, it just means that I didn't go into any particular essay with a plan to, with like a clear plan for integrating different ideas. I think one of the things I love about the essay as a genre is that it can contain so much. Like you can fit in data and research and um, graphs and personal narrative and um you know, like almost anything, like there's even one, like I would say the rule with essays is like you can't put fiction in there. But there actually is one essay in the book that begins with what is essentially fiction, which is like I imagine the moment in which my parents first met. And, um, of course, that the essay sort of goes on to to unpack all the ways in which I got that wrong. So I think I sort of pulled that off. Um, but I like this idea that like, or really you can fit anything into the essay. So as long as you go in with like a question, um, or problem that you're trying to solve, it's just like whatever helps me to think through that question or think through the problem. I'm like, yeah, let's try it out. Let's see if it fits. Um, and so I think that led to a sort of collage approach, like the research, like I did a lot of research just because I was curious and it was interesting and fun. And then 
that inevitably makes me think about my own experiences that are related to the particular things that I'm uncovering in the research. And then, you know, thinking about my own experience leads me to ask more questions. Well, like, oh, what do scientists think? Like, what do, like, so I'm like, intuitively, it feels like stories shape the way we think about love. Are Is there any research that suggests that maybe this is true or have I got it totally wrong? And so it's kind of like, a research inspires like a memory, which inspires more research, which inspires like another anecdote. And so, you know, it wasn't like I set out to talk about, to say like, I want to get this in the book and this in the book and this in the book. It was more like I had this whole pile of research that I'd done and I have, you know, my own memories and reflections. And I just sort of asked a question and that helped me kind of see what fit in to try and answer. Mm-hmm. You mentioned your parents, um, the chapter about your parents, and let me just go to the, 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 the table of contents here. The football coach and the cheerleader, what makes a good love story? So one of the things that I noticed is also interesting before we get to the parents chapter is that you have the title chapter and then you have sort of like a subtitle chapter that explains, uh, you know, what sort of gives more context for that chapter. Um, how did you come up with that idea? Um, basically, when I was working my book proposal, I had, it, it was very easy for me to throw together. I mean, I, I, my agent said to me, send me a list of essays that you think might go in the book. And I think this took maybe like 10 minutes. Like, I just knew instantly what each essay could be. Um, and obviously that changed a little bit throughout the process, but it, it was so easy. And so I said, Oh, there's this one is about this. And this is about this. And he said, okay, I think we're going to need subheadings as a way to convince the publishers, potential publishers that each one of these is actually something to do with love stories. So why don't you just throw a subheading in there? You don't have to actually use them in the book, but that will just help them sort of visualize how, how like the sort of idea at the heart of each essay. Um, and I was like very resistant to using the subheadings, but then I don't know, I just kind of got used to them and I thought, you know, these might help just show the direction that each, that the book is going as it moves along. I do think the subheadings work well. Um, oh, good. And I am the official authority on subheadings. I would well, like to say. you're the first person to mention it, so I feel like really good about it. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. I just lost a question here. Did you change your name? Did you change the names of any of the people in the book? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I changed the names of most of about half the people. Anyone I dated. I changed their name. Um, I do talk about my partner, Mark, and I use his real name. Um, and we sort of talked about whether or not he was okay with that. And he is fine with it. So I use his real name and my sister's real name and a couple of my friends. But a lot of it, I changed names just because I felt like, you know, when you write nonfiction, you get to tell your story, but you also, especially if you're 
publishing with a publisher like Simon Schuster, it's like I have this huge platform. Um, and so my side of the story, not that I necessarily think of stories that having sides, my version of the story um, just gets a lot more weight and visibility than the version that would be told by anyone else that I write about. And so I wanted to respect people's privacy for that reason. Um, and I wanted to, I didn't want anyone to feel unfairly exposed. So anyone whose real name I used, I try to make sure that they were comfortable with what I wrote. You do a good job with analogies in your um, book. There's one analogy that you used about salmon dinners and inadequate salmon dinners. <laughs> um, and then there's several others that you use that are, are humorous. And then um, a lot of times you do what in comedy they call a callback where you'll have told us something earlier and then you reference it later and we laugh because we know um, what you're talking about. Is that something that comes naturally to you or do you know you work on that in revision? Oh, this is this is so interesting. So I guess the term callback makes sense to me, but I've never thought about it as something that you can do in writing. Um, someone else, I was recently at a lecture and someone else described this as like ringing a bell, which is that there's an image and it comes back again. And, and it's not like you're, you don't want to rely too heavily on that image. You don't want to make it do too much work. You just want to ring it like a bell. I thought, oh yeah, I love that idea. I think, yeah, I would say that that does come naturally to me because I think my mind wanders a lot as I write. And if I don't have something to anchor me, like something to come back to, then I think the essay might start to feel a bit incoherent to a reader, a bit rambly. So I do, do try to come back to things um, to keep the writing grounded when I can. That's but that's cool. Hmm? It's cool. It's just nice. Um, it's just nice doing an interview with a writer who is really attentive to these things. I feel like I'm learning from this process. Oh, <laughs> it's awesome. awesome. I love, I, and I, I realized, I think I took the wrong kind of notes because <laughs> I was like marking everything you did. I was like, okay, she opens with a scene here and then you would end the scene and then you would go in X. So I'm marking all these different moves you made. And in between time, I made other comments, but I have so much, oh, she went back in time here and she did a flashback, but you do a really <laughs> good job of controlling time within your essays. How do you, what's one tip do you think that you could give that to help people do that effectively? Hmm, that's a really good question. I don't even know if I'm a good person to answer this question. I'm like the teacher in me wants to have a good answer to this question. Um, but I think good editing, whether you're able to edit your own writing or have someone else help you with it is really what it comes down to. Like my agent did a first edit of everything I wrote before I submitted it to my editors. Um, and I had no idea going into this process that, that, that it would work that way. But from what I understand, that's increasingly common. Um, agents do do a lot of editing and I tend to ramble. 
So he would cut things back a bit and then my editor would cut things back a bit. And then through the editorial process, I do think things got tightened up a lot. And um, so that's probably a big part of it. I also think taking time, like I think of the essay is a genre that is written slowly. You know what I mean? Like I'll come up with an idea and it will become a piece of writing, you know, months or often even like years later. Mm. Like I had this idea of writing this essay about my parents' love story probably like eight or nine years ago. And, you know, I kept trying and trying, never quite felt like it was working. And I think I just needed time to get perspective and kind of figure it out. And so for me, like I'll, I'll work on something and then I'll, I will put it away for a while. And, you know, I have the luxury of doing this because I have a day job. So like, because I teach and that pays my bills, I've felt like for many years, and this was important to me and probably why teaching was a good job for me. I wanted to have the space to think things through and to be able to write about what I wanted to write about without a lot of financial pressure or a lot of deadlines. And, um, and so I could work on something and if it wasn't working, put it away and come back to it six months later. And I always find when I come back to it, I can see something that isn't working or a way that something should be working that I couldn't see when I was writing it. Um, and maybe that's the biggest thing because I tend to overwrite and then cut back. And I think time and space is the best tool for me for editing. Okay. Now I'm scrolling through now I'm scrolling through my notes on in the chapter, the football coach and the cheerleader. And uh, I said, uh, one of the questions I had, what influenced your decision to do narrative nonfiction with your parents when you actually go when you interview them? And what was the process like of interviewing them? Did you record it? Did you just take notes? Yeah, I just took notes. Um, but I tried to I tried to take notes as word for word as I could. Um, and I think I say this in the in the book, but it was I was so scared. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, I guess I do. I was scared to ask them about their love story. I think because I felt like, you know, maybe they would want to talk about it, or maybe it would feel invasive, or maybe um, they would feel exposed because they knew I was going to write about it, or maybe I was just like a little bit embarrassed that. You know, they had divorced years earlier and kind of moved on with their lives. And, like, what? why was I still, like, hung up on the story? Um, but I think ultimately the essay didn't really work. It didn't really sort of come together until I did that interview. So I, I put it off basically as long as I could. Um, but it wasn't until I realized at a certain point, I was like, you know what? I need to ask them for their version of the story. Because I'm not really going to understand it until I hear what they have to say. Yeah. And um, I think I was right, despite my reluctance. One of the things that happens, and I'm scrolling to find out where I said it happened, but I know it, I believe it happens when you, maybe the second chapter with the parents where you learn the story is not true, or maybe it's that same chapter. At any rate, yeah, a couple one. times during the book, 
you will have told us what you believe in a story and then you reveal to us that that's not true and the reader kind of gets like a shock or like like a what like <laughs> they feel what you feel like what do you mean that's not true um, <laughs> oh that's good i'm glad to hear that's your response because i would say when when you when i found when you know when you find out that your story is you know there's different they're like no that's not your dad's like that's not you know um mm -hmm. i'm kind of like what and so you created this feeling <laughs> <laughs> the same feeling i guess that you might have had when you oh, went yeah. through that yeah i hope so that i mean that makes me really happy to hear because i do think what i wanted to do was not just explain this process of realizing that our love stories are false often or at least like incomplete but I also wanted to like kind of dramatize it a little bit, or at least give the reader the feeling of going through that same experience. Um, and I think that it's more convincing than me saying, oh yeah, well, what we think happened or the way we conceptualize love is different from the reality. Like it's, it's much more convincing to actually just show that happening. So yeah, I'm glad that that worked. That's good. I actually found the note a little garbled, but um, sets up the reader. Let's see what part was I talking about here. <laughs> so where are you asking your mom what you remembered about first meeting dad? And she says, well, my best friend and I went to interview him for the school newspaper. Yes. Yes. And, and you yeah. say, <laughs> you say already I had the story wrong. And so my note was that it sets up the reader continually. You're like, wait, what? And then um, when we learned that she wasn't alone and then some other things. And I, my question was, even though you told us you made up the story, even though you told us in the beginning, this is what I imagined happened. <laughs> <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> when we find out what really happened it's still a shock to us and i wonder if that speaks to the power of story ironically that you're f trying to find out this story but you're telling us a story and we believe this story and then we're like jolted by it oh it's so interesting um yeah i love this idea because i think especially love stories right like love stories in particular it's just like such a it's such a beloved genre and we, you know, there's like a whole neurochemical thing that happens when you read a love story or watch a rom-com where, you know, it activates your, the reward system in your brain, even though it's not you falling in love, you feel a little bit like it is you. And it's just like these mirror neurons, which create this like deep empathy. And so, um, yeah, I think that's a little bit what happens is like we want these narratives to be true because they feel so rewarding. Like they literally are rewarding in our brains. And so it's extra uncomfortable, I think, to find out when they're not true, <laughs> like a little bit wrong. I mean, certainly that was my experience. Obviously, they're my own parents. So the stakes are slightly higher, but you know, it's like I open the essay with this description of how they met and there's like a little bit of mystery in it. And, and this particular passage, I have to say like the beginning of that essay where I describe how they met is the only thing I've ever 
written in my life that I just wrote it. It came out in one go. I pretty much didn't edit it. Like maybe I took a couple of words out here and there, but it's, it's like, it's the most whole and complete and easy to write thing I've ever written. And I realized that's probably because I spent my whole life sort of imagining this scene. So it just didn't require any work because it was like alive in my mind and I'd already done the editing in my head. And then to interview my mom and her be like, oh yeah, it was me and, and my best friend. And I was like, what? <laughs> this whole moment is totally wrong. Yeah, that was like very frustrating for me. So I'm glad it was also frustrating for you. <laughs> that was frustrating. <laughs> uh, so let's see. I think I've moved on. Might be into the next chapter. Da, 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 da. When you are find out, you're, you transition, you're talking about the death of your grandfather. And mm -hmm. in that scene where you, I guess, were in the living room um, and then you went up to the room where your mom was, I think she was in the bedroom, and you start retelling your conversation with her, there's a point in that paragraph when the voice becomes young and it feels like, what, six or seven year old, forget how old you say you were here, but it feels four. like four. Yeah. It feels yeah. like young Mandy saying, so one of the things, um, that you write, um, she asked if I knew what it meant when someone died. I nodded. I'd seen it in the movies. When someone died, they did not come back, but she reminded me of this anyway. She told me Papa was in heaven. I don't know. It just felt very young. And I wonder mm -hmm. if that was, did you, intentionally think I'm going to try to channel this four-year-old kid or? No, no, not at all. I think that probably just happened because maybe that's like a little bit inevitable when we write about our former selves, <laughs> younger versions of ourselves, we slip into those voices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I hadn't even noticed that, but, but yeah, you're right. In terms of your research, one of the questions I had here was the doctor is I don't know is Aaron or Aaron was is he alive Aaron. and did you talk to him? He is alive. Um, I emailed him right before the Modern Love article came out, and he actually I guess I email yeah, and he didn't seem. Um, I'm sure he's a very busy guy. He wrote back a really short sentence and I was like okay <laughs> um but then the article really um kind of went viral and he got a lot of good press from it and mm. he and I I think we both ended up doing the Diane Ream show on NPR one day and we we had a couple minutes we were all on Skype everybody's like in a different city and we had a couple minutes to just chat on Skype before it went live. Um, so that's like <laughs> the most I've talked to him. Um, but it does seem like it was really good for his research. They like he's on the Today Show, and um, they had done some sort of follow-up studies based on the momentum of that particular one. So yeah, it was kind of cool. It's kind of neat to see that it was useful for him too. And at the end of the book, they, you run the essay um, from Modern Love. Am I correct in saying that? I know you do, but I feel like yeah. it, was, it, yeah, was, yeah. it was more, was there more 
the essay that ran in the book did that have some other pieces in it that weren't in the the original essay yes yeah. so there's an there's an essay in the book called if you can fall in love with anyone how do you choose and the idea behind that essay was to sort of you know i wanted to unpack i guess the experience of of the modern love piece because i felt like I felt like um, I'd been writing about love stories critically for all these years, and then my own story sort of became the kind of love story that I was criticizing, that I was mm. really skeptical of. Mm. Um, and so, because I felt like people had this idea about my relationship and that we had had this magical night and we had done these 36 questions and by the end of the evening like we were in love and it had changed my life and you know that just really wasn't my experience of it and um and so I kind of wanted to talk about what that was like both in terms of telling the larger story of of how we got together but also just um talking about kind of what it's like to to have like your own relationship being written about like mm. in international news media mm. <laughs> very strange okay what is your favorite oh here's another note i have a doctorate question mark in return to, <laughs> in regards to you and no <laughs> do you want one is the question i think she's gonna do one mm. i feel like this book says <laughs> <laughs> no uh, so i have a master's in fine arts and creative writing and when I finished my MFA, my ex at the time, Kevin, he wanted to start grad school. And so we sort of had this deal, like I would finish grad school, he would start grad school, we would move to wherever he wanted to go to school, which turned out to be Vancouver, which is great because I love living here. Um, and I was in this position where as an American living in Canada, I had to figure out how to stay in the country. Um, and one option was that we could get married and I did not want to do that. It did not align with my romantic ideas about marriage. Um, and another option was that I could go to school, like I could become a student. So I thought, do I want to get a PhD? Um, and I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And the other option was I could get a job and and that one happened first which is I got hired to teach one semester of English at UBC and um, and it occurred to me pretty quickly that I could spend the next five to seven years teaching and making a little bit of money and working on a book or I could spend that time going back to school getting a PhD going into debt and coming out pretty much disqualified to do the exact job I already had. <laughs> so I thought, eh, I think I'll just teach the minimum I can to afford to live and spend as much free time as I can afford writing. And, um, and I had this intuition when I was younger that I would not be able to live that cheaply forever. And I was right. My living expenses have gone up dramatically since I was 25. Um, so it was good. So I'm very grateful to my younger self for making that decision. So, yeah. In, in terms of your book deal, and I've asked several other authors, so I have to ask, 
the deal that you got, would you be able to live off, say, for a year, two years? Most people wonder, like, oh, first time authors on a major house, like, where's the, where is it? Where does it fall? Where does it land at? I mean, I'm frugal. I have very few expenses. I have no car payment, no student loans, no children, just the dog. And I share an apartment with my partner. I could live off it. At least five years, probably more. Okay. I'm very lucky. Um, one of my final questions is the com- maybe more of a comment, commending you on the book. I have a note here that says part philosopher, part therapist, part friend, which is kind of... <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> what you get um, from this book when you read it. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. That is such a nice compliment. I was like so pleased to hear that. You're welcome. And I would like to ask you, what is your research superpower that helped you write this book? Oh, um, you know, I think it is, um, I probably have a couple research superpowers. One is that it's my job to teach people how to write research papers. So I spend my days um, modeling this for other people. So I spent many hours navigating things like uh, online academic journal databases um, and showing my students how to use them. And so I sort of learned because I had to to, to help other people do it well. Um, and the other really great superpower that I feel lucky to have is that I have many close friends who are academics and especially I have a bunch of friends who are psychologists and they are very generous in their willingness to share resources with me and also help me understand academic work that is just not in my field that is a little too jargony or specific or technical for me. And that is a huge asset that I feel very lucky to have. Well, uh, thanks to all of your friends for being there and helping you through that. And thanks to you for going through the process of uh, putting yourself out there and being so very honest um, in your modern love. And the honesty actually led you to even getting the modern love published. And you do continue that in this book. So um, I definitely would recommend anyone to pick it up. Like you say a lot of... you. You, you reveal cultural things that you learned even in the research and everyone will learn something from this book regardless of where you fall like on the love spectrum. So congratulations. That's it, cool. It comes out on the 27th, correct? Yeah. And the other exciting thing that's happening this week is I have a new modern love coming out on <gasps> Sunday. <What>? Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Congratulations, that's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, very excited about it. And you'll actually be with Daniel Jones, um, who is the editor of Modern Love, and Ada Calhoun, mm-hmm. who's another author. She has a Modern Love author and has a book out um, in D.C. on June 29th. And yeah. So I'll have the links up to all your events. You're going to be in Brooklyn uh, a couple days before that, um, mm-hmm. back in Vancouver, then Texas. So you're going to be all over Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, San Francisco, California, Mountain View, California. So you've got a big tour coming up, and I, I know it's going to be successful. Thanks. I hope so. It's very exciting. 
it's funny. I was just at a wedding um, of one of my psychologist friends. So I was like having brunch with a bunch of psychologists yesterday. And, and um, one of them studies how to reframe nervousness as excitement. Mm. <laughs> and she's like, they're both states of high arousal, but one is like high negative arousal and one's high positive arousal. So if you convince yourself that the sweaty palms and the butterflies in your stomach are excitement, then um, it tends to like improve your outlook and your performance. So I'm trying to practice saying, I'm so excited <laughs> instead of I'm very nervous. That was very so, believable, yeah. actually, because I was like, wow, <laughs> she's strong. I would be like, oh. <laughs> so it's working it's working <laughs> it's working i've only been practicing it for like 24 hours so that's good <laughs> i'm gonna make a new another prediction i made a prediction a couple years ago when i interviewed um author natalie bazil and her her auto her book novel queen sugar had came out and i told her that it felt like a tv show or a movie or tv show Little did mm, I know, it had already been picked up by Ava Duvernay. Ava, what is her last name? Duvernay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And, and Oprah to be a television. Oh wow! Show. Damn. And I, we found that out like literally the week, the next week or two. So I oh, predict so cool. this is a New York Times bestseller. Oh wow! Well, you know that would be amazing. I'm not going to get my hopes up on that front, <laughs> but. You don't have Thank to. Thank you I, for I, the I, prediction. I call these things. I call these things. I, I feel cool. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is really fun. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, prosers, I have got a treat for you this week. I'm doing what I'm going to call a behind the prose short, which is a shorter interview than my usual long ones to be followed by a usual long interview. But today's first author featured in a Behind the Prose short is Bob Brody. He's an executive and a writer. He lives in Queens in New York City, um, and he's married with two children. And um, I met Bob via the Internet last year when he was hosting a panel at the American Society of Journalists and Authors um, conference in May. And I went down to that panel and I told you guys a little bit about it. Um, I wrote an article about it for the writer magazine. I'll put that in the show notes. And he had uh, Philip Lopate there, um, Ada Calhoun, I believe. And he could tell you a couple, uh, I forget Pamela from the New York times one of the New York times books editors were there. So it was a really good panel. Um, and so I've kept in touch with Bob because one, he's a writer and two, he has a book coming out, which came out on it comes out on it just came out on sunday i think we're gonna check with him he's gonna clear me up when i introduce him so i'm gonna introduce him right now welcome bob brody to behind the pros thank you keisha happy to be here with you so your book plain catch with strangers it came out this sunday right on father's day it just came out yesterday yes that's right on father's day congratulations well thank you and is this your first a book it's my second book. It's my first book in 25 years. Okay. And you're on Heliotrope Books. That's the publisher of this new book, yes. Mm -hmm. 
So we're going to talk today about your process with this book, and I've read some of it. I'll ask you some questions on it. But how long were you working on this manuscript before you started to shop it around? It, um, it came about piecemeal because about 12 years ago, I just decided that I would turn my hand to personal essays and started writing about my family and about friends and about my neighborhood and about playing pickup basketball and just anything that uh, was of personal interest to me that I thought might be of interest to other people and started publishing pieces um, in newspapers and magazines and eventually came to the point where I realized that I had written something roughly equivalent to a memoir except I'd done it in pieces and without intending to write a memoir. And at that point, I approached an agent and then a publisher and said I would like to collect these pieces and some unpublished pieces as well and turn them into a memoir. And so that's how I got going with it. But it was much more than just compiling all these pieces I needed to I needed to merge pieces, I needed to uh, organize them, I needed to get the order right. There was much more work involved than I expected. Um, and I also just needed to remember that piece, certain pieces were published originally for certain occasions like Mother's Day or Father's Day or Valentine's Day, and those references were no longer going to be important in the context of a book. So. It, um, it took quite a bit of manipulating and maneuvering to get it into a form so that it really read like a memoir. Hmm. In the form that you have it in, if we just were scroll through the table of contents, because I'm on my Kindle app here on the iPad, and what I notice is that you have, um, you have several... We have lots of chapters, but they're almost like vignettes. They're like short, brief, and then you have larger sections. So you have the first section called Homeboy, and within that, there are several, would you call them chapters, 1 through 26? Yes, I think that's fair. Okay. And then we have the next section going independent um, with several chapters, and then uh, mating season, the next section, and then the next section at midpoint, and the final section, closing arguments. So I read several in the homeboy section. And first of all, I guess the question is, what was your inspiration for um, structuring the book like this? Well, I realized that for the book to have a natural feel for me to, for me to, and for me to tell the story right, it, it, it had to be chronological. I, I really had to start uh, in my childhood and with my hometown and with my first experiences with my mother and father and then and go from there. Um, that, that, that way the book would have an element of, okay, what's going to happen next? It would have um, and in, an intriguing quality. I, ideally, people would be left guessing about what I was going to do after I left um, my hometown or what I was going to do after I moved to New York City and five weeks later was stabbed in the chest by, um, 
by uh, a, a knife-wielding drug addict, or what was I going to do um, later in my life when my mother and I became estranged for 10 years? Would we be reunited? Would we be reconciled? And so um, I decided that even though I'm very interested in jumping around in time, and I think that's uh, that's a... Um, a, a technique that is worth applying for certain kinds of writing. In this case, it just seemed to me that I should ju- I should just tell it straight. Hmm. I I think that's encouraging to hear because I think a lot of authors might think that that they need to do something other than chronological. Yes, and and I've read memoirs. Uh, I liked very much that that took the same approach I wound up taking. And those memoirs read beautifully. I think of Growing Up by by Russell Baker, the former New York Times columnist uh, whose work I always admired. And uh, his his memoir, Growing Up, is is straight, straight chronology. Um, I read the uh, the the memoir by uh, Oliver Sacks. For example, that he came out with uh, the Dr. Oliver Sacks, who 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 died just uh, I guess a couple of years ago, um, and he told about his boyhood and and uh, really the first half of the book is absolutely wonderful because it's all sorts of stuff that we never knew about him. The second half is all about how he uh, wrote the book Awakenings and how it became a movie, and then he met Robert De Niro and that stuff we sort of knew about and it was pretty familiar, but, um, and then, uh, I think of Keith, I think Keith Richards, uh, wrote a, wrote a memoir, uh, just a few years ago that I thought was excellent. Mm -hmm. Obviously, uh, I mean, it was obvious to me anyway, that, that he had really done it himself, no ghostwriter on hand. And, uh, he, as far as I can recall, told it more or less from the beginning of his life to his, uh, his current status. So, Mm. um, so there are definitely precedents for that, but I know that lots of memoirists like to shift around in time, and I can certainly see a rationale for doing that. And if I'm so lucky as to write more memoirs in the future, something I'd very much like to do, uh, I may take that approach of, of jumping around. Um, but uh, for this book, uh, being just telling it from uh, early days on seemed the right approach. So I'm scrolling through the first um, few uh, chapters in your first section, Homeboy. And what I want to start with, the first section is To Be Heard. Um, And that opens up with a scene of you at three or four years old talking with your mother face to face. And you're trying to tell her something you write Um, And we learn as the reader that she is deaf and you're trying, she's trying to instruct you to how to move your lips and, um, you know, to speak more slowly. And then in the next scene, we learn about far, far away. It goes back to in time to your father when he was five years old. And then it, the next one I think comes, goes back to your mom. And within this telling of their story, who your father was also deaf. Um, within the telling of their story, you're giving us sort of a history of what 
it was like to be deaf at that time in around the 1930s, right? 1930s, 1940s. And how it wasn't necessarily, wasn't an ideal situation. They didn't get treated the way they should have been treated. Um, So as I was reading this, I wondered, one, are your parents still alive? Two, um, the story that you're telling, had you interviewed them this, interviewed them for this at some point in time um, and knew that you were going to craft this? Or are you going from memory of things that they told you? Uh, my mother is still alive. She is 88 years old. Um, I'm just trying to make sure I have that right. She is, was born, yes, uh, she, next month she's going to be uh, 89. Wow. Um, and uh, my father, uh, unfortunately, is gone 20 years now. He died at the age of 70 in 1997. Mm. Um and I'm sorry, the second half of your question oh, was whether I, whether I interviewed. I did interview my mother um, something like 30 years ago when I was writing a magazine article about growing up with a deaf mother. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the same time, I interviewed her mother, too, um, in order to get some background. Um, and, and I've asked my mother questions over the years. I never did interview my father um but a lot of this is is also is is based on on memory um just stuff my my mother has told me over the years and Mm -hmm. and uh remarks that my father made about going away to school uh far from home uh, at the age of five for the next 10 years and living away from home uh almost uh the entire time um and and so uh, I based a lot of what I wrote on on what I remembered. And uh, as far as those early experiences trying to communicate with my mother, those are experiences that just never go away. They, they uh, my my parents, uh, my mother is deaf and my father was deaf, and so my life is very much by deafness defined, and it's been just a governing fact of of my life and. Um, and their deafness is just kind of uh, seminal to everything that I think I became. I mean, it's hard to see how you could be raised by deaf parents without it having uh, an indelible influence on you. And so that was that was something that I was I was trying to get at. Um, and so I do have pieces uh, or chapters in the book. Um, throughout that uh, that that deal with um, my mother and her early days and and how her mother raised her and tried to raise her uh, to be independent um, or or rather yeah uh, and and in the case of my father I, I I write in later chapters about what he accomplished as a pioneer for for the deaf community. Um, revolutionizing uh, communications for for the deaf community, so it's just uh, it's just something you that that you live with, and then later on you try to understand it and see what it meant. Um, that's what I was trying to set the table for with those early chapters. One of the things that strikes me as far as the writing goes is. And simple has maybe like a negative connotation, but the sentences are so clean and smooth that 
it gives the reader a lot of space to sort of put themselves in the scene. Um, you don't do a lot of over description with it. it it's just very clean, um, sh clean, clean and smooth. Does that make any sense to you? It does, and it's definitely something I aim for, and I very much appreciate your recognizing it. That makes me feel great. Um, I, I mean, in, mo in most cases, if you have a story to tell, you have to try to kind of let the story tell itself, and I think the simpler the language, the better. Uh, I, I want people to be able to grasp what I'm trying to put across without really making all that much effort. And so I, I, I try to make it easy for readers, just as I appreciate it when other writers try to make it easy for me to understand something. I, I do not particularly appreciate uh, uh, willfully obscure writing or, or, or difficult writing. I mean, certainly I, I appreciate lyrical writing and uh and and even what you might call elevated writing and and um so i i'm very much an admirer of uh vladimir nabokov mm -hmm. and and uh and henry james and other writers who can spin out these sinuous sentences and um and you you just get kind of enraptured with their vocabularies um, and and that's fine, but um, and, and I think you just find the right form for the topic. And it just seemed to me, in most of these cases, um, I, I it, it served me well to to try to keep it simple. That there was no need for for uh, for elevated language. And also, I, I should say that um, because this was not really in the truest sense written as a book um, because it came together as newspaper and magazine pieces it was originally written for for newspaper readers and magazine readers and so in 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 in, in that case I, I was I was definitely mindful of of my audience but if if my work is um, clean and smooth then um, I'm happy to hear it and also. I noticed in that section, so we open up with your scene with the mom. And I mean, just the idea that, and I don't usually talk about content um, on, in, on my shoes, but just the concept of a child being born to two deaf parents um, seems like if, if movie, movie-ish, like, you know what I mean? Like this, this is really happened. Like, what are the odds and what a story does that make? Yes. Well, uh, I mean, I've I've written about my mother uh, off and on for something like thirty years. It's just again, uh, it, it's it's something that's that's always uh, drawn me as a as a topic, and as, and it's a it's a central fact of life for me. So um, I've 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 grappled with it. I, I've tried to um, make sense of it. I've tried to trace uh, how it's influenced me. I've just kind of tried to connect the dots mm -hmm. to figure out, okay, my parents were deaf. Um, they raised me, and so now my personality is what it is, or these are the actions I've taken, or this is the profession I've pursued, and so what's the connection? Mm -hmm. 
And um, I, I do tend to suspect, and maybe it's more theory than anything else, And but I think it's legitimate, and it's taken me a while to realize it, that one of the big reasons I became a writer in the first place is those early experiences trying to communicate with my mother and father. It was very important. It is very important if you're a hearing child communicating, trying to talk to your deaf mother or deaf father. It's very important to be, to be clear and to be concise and to use short, simple words and to just get across what you have to get across. Uh, there's, there's no, um, there, there's just very little margin of error there, and it's very easy to be misunderstood, especially if you're a child and you're just learning language yourself. So I think I realized very early on, without without knowing that I was realizing it, was that um, I had to place a premium on being precise um, about what I wanted to say. I'm just looking at the picture of your mom, who you say, and she is Elizabeth Taylor lookalike, um, and your dad when they got, I think this is when they got married, this picture in yes. that section. Um, one of the things I think that your prose does, in in addition to making it accessible for the reader, it might make certain things more impactful. So your dad, who was very smart, he had all these, did these inventions and things. He invented this um, device. So when you cried, the lights would flash, like there would be flashing lights and your mom would know that you were crying because at after your birth, I guess she lost all the rest of her hearing. So she never got to hear you cry. And just the simple description of what he did with the lights and, you know, that section it 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 allowed i think it maybe allowed me to res it allowed it to resonate more with me like wow like you know this woman she had to look at lights and then you mentioned that later she says that when she sees the flashing light she you know it was like her remembering hearing you cry yes it uh, I, I mean all this was absolutely normal for me because this was um the backdrop for what happened in my early life, those lights flashing. We had lights going off when the doorbell rang because otherwise how would my mother know that somebody was at the door? We had lights going off when the phone rang because otherwise nobody would know that somebody was trying to call us on the phone. And by the same token, my father came up with that device so that my mother could see the lights flashing when I cried so that she would see that I was in distress and needed attention. And um, just recently, I came across um, another perspective about this, and it was through Facebook. Um, I suppose I had posted a piece about my mother or about my father, I forget which, and somebody who grew up three houses away from me or four houses away from me told me how he remembered as a boy, that he would sometimes go past my house and see the lights flashing. Mm. And I never thought about what that must look like mm. to somebody else outside the house. I had only remembered those lights flashing from inside the house. Mm. So it was just a really interesting... I'm so glad he, he shared that observation with me because it gave me that 
kind of broader canvas so that I could see how he saw um, the life I was living inside that house. Mm. And so the scene that you opened with, um, with your talking to your mom and trying to get uh, get across to her what you're saying in the section that ends sort uh, sort of that part of the memoir you say in my earliest towards the end of it that section is called cries unheard in my earliest memory of my mother as in her earliest memory of her mother i'm struggling to get through to her in simple conversation so you bring us back to the beginning where you started with this scene and then also connecting it to her own mother and her own experience and now we have more of a perspective so i guess the question is, even though these were, and I guess, so the, that first section, was that whole first section one essay? And did it, that did that essay start with that scene and end with that scene? No, in some case, in this case, that is, that is a piece of an essay. I decided to break up that essay. And that's some of the work that I did puzzling through the essays and figuring out how to uh, how to organize them to to the best possible effect. Yeah. I I for example did did break up some essays so that if I was talking about early days and then later days I would only put the early days at the beginning of toward the beginning of the book and then the later section would go elsewhere in the book and maybe that would be patched together with a piece of another essay, so it was. It was very much a um, uh, piecing piecing together a puzzle, um, so that I could see what what might fit where. And also, one of the pleasures of the book that I got was that because I had written so many of these pieces originally for newspapers or magazines. Sometimes, I mean, usually places have word counts, and if you're going to be in print. You might be limited to uh, 600 words or 700 words, and some of the pieces that I'd submitted uh, came in longer than they wound up being published, and so I would have to, I would have to, uh, I would have to trim pieces um, by a third or by a fourth. And of course, you always manage to do that, and sometimes the pieces come out better, and sometimes you've. Uh, regret what winds up on the cutting room floor, and one of the one of the great satisfactions of doing this memoir is that I was able to restore um, the cut material that I thought deserved to be restored. I didn't restore everything because some of it really deserved to be cut. But um, so 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 that's that's also um, uh, and so that means that this book is it just has a has a somewhat more fleshed out feel than than um than was originally the case and uh it made me it made me happy to be able to do that hmm. but well, something i learned while doing that and maybe other writers already know this is that um you, you, you an editor says to you that you need to cut uh, your piece from 1800 words to 1200 words and your first reaction is 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 you gasp and with anxiety and think how can that be possible? My my piece is going to be butchered. It's gonna it's gonna just uh, flop completely. But then you realize that almost invariably um, the trimming does the piece good. It it strengthens it. You strip away the fat. 
you're left only with muscle. I will certainly look forward to having you back um, for a full episode. And I think I'm going to see if I can get something special for Behind the Prosers um, to participate with a second taping with you. Um, So are you going out on tour or anything with this book? I'm doing appearances here and there. I was recently at the Queen's Book Festival doing a uh, panel discussion among authors in Queens who write about Queens. And I'm going to be doing some library appearances um, and others. Um, nothing as, uh, as choreographed as a, as a tour. It's, it's going to be here and there. Mm-hmm. A full-time job that I maintain in public relations, so um, I need to honor my commitments. But I'm going to do what I can mm-hmm. to uh, try to get the word out about the book. And my only hope is that people will give it a chance, people will read it, and best of all, people will like it and appreciate it. I encourage people to give it a chance. Um, I've read the first part of the first section, and I do want to finish the book, I have to say. (laughs) I would be interested in finishing it. So um, it's got my vote. And I would love to have you back to, after I finish it, to talk more about it. Thank you. I'd love to talk with you again. You've been listening to an MFA and an MP3. Behind the Pearls music is by UK artist Redvers West Boyle. You can find him on SoundCloud and you can find me on Twitter at Behind the Pros. If you want infrequent email from me, please text the word Pros to the number 22828. The show is hosted and produced by Keisha Whitaker, that's me, from a clothis. That is an office inside a closet in Pennsylvania. Until next time, listen, learn, and write.